Bones, a true crime podcast. The case we have for you this week is about the disappearance of Elizabeth Ann Gill, who was abducted from her front yard in Cape Girardeau, Missouri in 1965. Elizabeth was just two years old at the time of her disappearance. Bridger baby is two, so this one really pulled on my heartstrings while researching. If you want to see pictures related to this week's case, you can follow us on Instagram at Bones A True Crime Pod or find us on our Facebook page, Bones A True Crime Podcast. If you have any questions or case suggestions, you can email us at Bones A True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. Subscribing to our episode and leaving positive reviews are one of the best ways you can help support our podcast. It doesn't cost you anything and it massively helps us. We appreciate you all. Now let's dive in. So first thing we want to talk about is actually not case related. Um, So we were throwing around the idea of maybe creating a Facebook group already have the page but the group could just be somewhere for like open discussion if someone saw something like going on in the true crime world they wanted to make a post about we could just all talk about it and kind of discuss um but we need a name like what we call people that listen to our podcast um so we need ideas on that we need to make a post about that Yes, so one of our main ideas was boneheads. We thought that was kind of unique. I mean, it might be kind of um, silly too, so let us know what you guys think. Maybe we will post, like, think of a couple names and then make a post on Facebook and then a post on Instagram, and you guys can pick what's your favorite or if you have any suggestions. Yeah, we... Definitely need some ideas. I think Boneheads is kind of funny. It's a little bit tacky, but I feel like that's what the names are supposed to be, like tacky and quirky. Um, I listen to one co- podcast. It's called Relatable, but they call themselves Relatabells and Bros. It's just kind of funny. Um, so yeah, we we need ideas. We obviously are not very creative. We didn't even come up with the name for podcast. We had to steal that from Logan's dad. So <laughs> help us out. But back to Elizabeth Ann Gill, which is who we're going to tell you about this week. She was often called Beth for short by her family. Elizabeth was the youngest of 10 children. Her family had several nicknames that they called her, and I kind of used them interchangeably throughout this episode. So bear with me. But they all kind of like string from her name so you can put together who we're talking about. Elizabeth was born August 21st in 1962. There's a photo of the Gill family from 1963 and there's three boys and six girls pictured. I'm not sure where the 10th child is, though I do believe that it was a female just because other sources mention six sisters and then um, Elizabeth would be number seven of the girls. It's so crazy to me that people had so many kids during this time. I want like five kids and people look at me like I'm crazy. I think even, I think 10 would even be too much for me though. So I couldn't even afford to feed them. Um, yeah. And I'm not letting you have five kids. I really don't even want you to have one more because you make me such a nervous wreck when you're pregnant and during delivery. But I guess... We'll worry about that a different day. I would like to have all the babies, just not to physically birth them. If anyone wants to give me their kids, I'm open. I do probably need to talk to Josh, though. (laughs) So I mentioned that Elizabeth was the baby of the family previously. Martha Gill Hamilton is is Elizabeth's older sister, And she described Elizabeth as everyone's little angel. We're going to talk quite a bit about Martha throughout this episode. She seems to be one of Elizabeth's biggest advocates. And she was just her big sister. So Logan knows about like being a big sister and just being that role model. And you want to protect your babies. I have two brothers, um, little brother. And Logan has a little sister. So we're both the oldest in the family. 
Martha wasn't quite the oldest, but she was 13 years older than Beth. So I'm sure this was just like having her very own little baby doll when she was born. Martha was 15 years old when her sister was abducted. The babies of the family always have a reputation for being spoiled because everybody goes the extra mile for them. Elizabeth was the definition of that, but she was also described as sweet-natured and trusting. Martha told NBC that Elizabeth never wanted to throw a fit. I remember I would always get mad at my youngest brother for being a baby and whining, but I also continued to baby him and I would get mad when my parents would get on to him. I know that we would get annoyed with Gentry too, but we were just so much older than her that it wasn't even fair for us to get mad at her because she was literally a baby. Yeah, so there's a nine-year age gap between me and Gentry, so we definitely act like she was our kid and not, like, our sibling, Um, but we were so mean to her. Like, I don't think that we should even tell stories because I'm pretty sure that we could probably get in trouble still because that's how mean we were to her. Um, She was just really easy to pick on, I guess. Um, and when it comes to being babied or favored, that is Gentry to a T. I tease her all the time that I'm still dad's favorite and that's all that matters that she can be mom's favorite. But I think that we've both been replaced by Ridley. So I don't know how that's going to pan out for old Gentry because she gets a little salty. We were mean to baby Gentry, but... You are still mean to her. I'm not because now Gentry is Auntie G to our babies and she is the best little auntie. So she is just fine now. She did endure a lot because of us. The Gill family seemed very wholesome. They were just like a Brady Bunch type of family. They lived in the same neighborhood that their father, Harry Gill, had grown up in when he was a child. The Gill family felt like they really knew and trusted their neighbors. It seemed safe to them just because they did know everybody. We grew up in a small town, so I understand the feeling of com- comfortability. But the difference in the Gill family was the town was changing. Cape Girardeau was growing and new buildings were being developed. This new construction was bringing in a variety of characters that the people in this area just weren't used to. There was a motel specifically that was built right behind the Gill family home. So on June 13th in 1965, it was a Sunday. Elizabeth's mother, Anola, and two of Elizabeth's older sisters were traveling back from Chicago. Elizabeth's father, Harry, was out of town working, but the other eight children were home in Cape Girardeau. So Elizabeth's father was an electrician, and he was working as an electrician in St. Louis at the time, so I assume he traveled for his work. And his wife, Anola, was the one dropping him off to work for the week, and she was returning to her children with the older two. The older children that were left at the house were supposed to be looking after the younger children, so they were pretty much built-in babysitters. They didn't really have to worry about having someone over. I know in today's world, this probably sounds really crazy. I mean, the oldest child would have probably been around 13, and then they were responsible for their seven younger siblings, the youngest obviously being two. I think this was pretty normal for the time, though, because nobody made a big deal about it in the articles that I found, and I know that the police didn't even really, like, they didn't make it a deal. They didn't try to blame the family, which they shouldn't, but I know now we probably would not leave a 13-year-old home with seven younger siblings to look after. I know I was staying home alone at the age of 13, but I also wasn't responsible for any younger kids. And looking like where we're at now, I don't know if I would let Parker stay home at 13 alone, but I don't know. That could, I could change as he gets older. I don't know yet. Um, so I agree. I think that was pretty normal back then. And also the world was a safer place then than it is now. Um, I don't think that I'll leave my kids at home alone either until like they can at least drive. I mean, cause what if something happened and they 
needed to go to town or they needed to drive a younger sibling somewhere. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I guess we'll see. I just, too many bad things happen nowadays. Like you think, like, I feel like you get in this mindset of, oh, it's fine. Everything's okay. Like that's how we did it when we were kids. And then you see something on Facebook or something on the news and you're like, okay, no, like this is not okay. So I'm kind of with you, Kaylin. I don't think um, any of the kids need to be staying home. I think that honestly, even like when I'm outside of my house, but one of the kids are inside sleeping or they're just both inside playing and being good. If I run outside to work on the yard or something, I instantly, I'm just like, what if my house blew up and my kids are inside? So I also always think of like extreme situations. Like I don't know any scenario where my house would just blow up and I couldn't go inside and get my kids before. But I think that we just hear more crazy things now and like it leads to more anxiety and just being more worst case scenario kind of thing. Um, It was around 4 p.m. that afternoon when the children noticed that Beth was nowhere to be seen. They'd been playing outside with other kids from the neighborhood, so everyone joined in the search for her. The Gill children actually looked inside and outside of the house calling her name in case she had hidden somewhere, but Beth never responded. One of the children decided to call the police, and that's when the search began, and I think it's very important just to remember the oldest child was only 13 and decided to take it into their own hands and be like, okay, it's time to call the police. Okay, and remind me again, Kaylin, Beth is only two, if I'm correct. So, like, a lot of things I feel like could happen to a two-year-old. Like, Ridley is 11, almost 11 months, and she's, like, into everything, crawling into everything. Like, you can turn your back, and it's like she's gone out of the room. So a two-year-old who is a little more mobile can walk all those things, like, there's no telling like what she could have gotten into because she is smaller and also like how far away she could have gotten before you realize she was gone because there is so many other siblings. Yeah, so she's only two and that does really expand the possibilities. So Bridger's actually two and a half and he is not walking yet. So I feel like every parent just knows their child, knows what they're capable of. I know Bridger couldn't run from me at this age, couldn't get away from me very far anywhere. If he can't roll, he can't get there. Or if he can't crawl, he can't get there. But in Elizabeth's scenario, she was able to walk. I know that um, like some kids are climbers, not all of them, but like Parker at one year old could climb up on our cabinets and open the doors without making a single sound. And he was obviously an only child then. I was a stay-at-home mom like He would do it within seconds just of me turning my back or switching the laundry, doing something that he knew I was preoccupied. He would take advantage of that scenario and be like, what can I do as fast as I can before mom finds me? So I think that Elizabeth could have been the same way. It seems like she was really like a sweet kid, didn't get into a lot of trouble. So this may not have been her personality. She may not have been one that was going to do like daredevil things. Maybe they knew if she was further than their yard or their house that it wasn't good and that's why they did know to act so quickly. It was around 4.30, 30 minutes after the kids realized something was wrong when um, Elizabeth's mother and two older children pulled into the neighborhood and they immediately noticed that there were police officers all over. They were aware that something was going on but that they didn't like it didn't cross their mind that they were going to finding the investigation at their house. They didn't know they should be worried about anything. It wasn't until they literally arrived home and someone told them that Beth was missing that they understood what was going on. Elizabeth's mother actually passed out upon hearing the news that her baby girl was nowhere to be found. And as a mother, I cannot even imagine how that must have felt and just what it felt like initially getting that news. Yeah, um, that had to be gut-wrenching, and I'm sure, like, she probably felt guilty or responsible in some way because she left her children home alone, even though that was normal back then. I still, like, I I know mom guilt, so I know, like, 
she had to feel so, so bad. I agree. I think that as moms, you typically blame yourself if anything goes wrong. Like if the boys hit their heads, I'm like, wow, why was I not putting a couch cushion on the floor or something so that they didn't hit their heads? Like it's, you're always thinking of how you should have done something differently. But hindsight is twenty twenty. It wasn't her fault. Um, she was doing what several other people did in the area at the same time. It just was unfortunately her daughter that had this scenario happen to. And it's cases like this that keep other people from making the same mistakes and like having this happen to their child. So Martha was the oldest sibling at the scene. We don't know where the oldest children were, but Martha was the oldest at the scene. She had been with her mother, but she went ahead and stepped up right away to take care of things. Martha took care of the youngest children and just attempted to keep them out of the way of the investigation. This is such a level-headed and responsible move, and I'm sure that it was reassuring for her mother knowing she at least didn't have to worry about the children that were there. Elizabeth was only two foot tall and six inches, and she weighed 22 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She had brown hair and blue eyes, but the possibilities would really be endless as far as what could have went wrong with her or even what she could look like now. We hear all the time about people dyeing kids' hair to make them, like if they're going to abduct them, they'll dye their hair quickly or cut their hair or change their appearance in some way. And Elizabeth was small enough to fit in the tiniest of spaces, but thankfully, she, was old en- she wasn't old enough to have wandered too far. So she may have went a good distance. Like we said, two-year-olds are very mobile, and she was almost three. Um, but it's not like she could have been a teenager running away knowing, I need to go get on this bus or get on this train to go wherever. So at least they did kind of have a reasonable distance to know she could have went on foot or something else less um something else that was a little more gruesome could have occurred i do want to throw it out there that there are conflicting timelines so Jeannie, one of the older siblings says that they went inside around 4:15 to get ready for church while some of the younger kids continued playing outside including elizabeth And 15 minutes later, so around 4.30, is when she called the other kids in but couldn't find Elizabeth. If this was the case, Elizabeth was missing a max of 15 minutes, but also could have been less. It could have just been minutes before she went outside. But this would also indicate that Elizabeth's mother and older sister hadn't arrived home at 4.30. It had to have been after because when they got home, the cops were already there and searching. I'm thinking that the time frame she could have been missing is probably more defined in police reports, but we're just going on recollections that the siblings have growing up and what the information is that they've given to various news stations over the years. June 14th was the day that Beth disappeared and was the day that the first big tip came in. Authorities were told that there was a couple staying in the motel behind the Gill residence This is one of those buildings that I said kind of just popped up. They were putting in new things. This couple was going to be having their car worked on while they were staying in town. And it sounds like they were maybe staying there kind of long term. They were just waiting for a part to arrive that would be in on Monday the 14th. So the day after Elizabeth disappeared, that part was supposed to have arrived. Originally, the couple was okay waiting for the part because they were going to be staying in town for another week or so. And it sounded like it had already been there for some time. When the auto dealer called the hotel to tell the couple that their part had arrived, he learned that the day before, around when Beth went missing, they had checked out. I would think that this would have been a red flag for the motel staff too, but they were not concerned enough to report anything, or they at least didn't put the pieces together yet. It was the mechanic who put two and two together and decided to with these suspicious circumstances. The police ran with this tip, though, and upon further investigation, they realized that this couple had been using fake names. 
They were changing their license plates, and they were also going door-to-door selling purses in the neighborhood. The couple was driving a light tan 1965 Chevy truck, but they left their vehicle behind when they checked out of the motel. It apparently couldn't run without the part that they needed, so they just chose to leave it behind, which is very suspicious to me. Police were able to trace the car to a dealership in Lake Origin, Michigan, and the purses back to the manufacturer, but neither effort was rewarded and there was no information regarding who purchased them. I'm pretty impressed that the investigative effort that was put in here went so far. I feel like older cases like this are usually a joke as far as the investigation goes. This time, they really followed every lead and there was just nowhere else for them to go. So was this like a complete dead end, Kaylin? Did they ever find anything on the couple or was was that like just it? Because you did say they were using fake names. Um, did they see, did they find any other sightings like in towns nearby or like different states? I feel like people like this, like, get noticed more often just because it sounds like they were doing some sketchy sketchy things but not knowing names I guess it might be kind of hard yeah so we're going to get into some of the tips that were reported later um we don't really know for sure that the police ever found the couple we do have some indications that maybe they found people who were similar or maybe they did find the exact couple It's a lot of it is just speculation and hearsay from different people. Um, I'm sure that they don't, I'm sure that they don't want to give away too much information, even though at this point, I don't think anybody would be alive or be able to be prosecuted. There were a few red flags leading up to Elizabeth's disappearance, though. So there were actually two separate instances that Martha recalled where a woman tried calling Elizabeth over to her car. The first time was when a woman at the hotel was trying to talk to her, so this would have been behind the family home. But the next time, the same woman was parked in front of the Gill home and was talking to Elizabeth in the front yard. When Elizabeth's mother and brother noticed this, her mother called her back inside. I want to say the family was just, like, carrying in groceries, and I'm like I said, they felt safe here. I'm sure they were just letting Elizabeth play in the yard while they brought things in and out of the house. My kids pretend to help me carry in groceries. Parker says he's going to, and then he sits them on the concrete, and I have to go back and get them. But I'm sure that it was just one of those things, like, they didn't just force her to go straight inside until they saw the circumstance going on. Enola described the woman that she and Martha had seen as heavyset, middle-aged, and driving a black-and-white 1965 Ford Thunderbird. Several more people would call in similar tips, saying that they saw the woman trying to coax Beth into her car. I'm very shocked that people called these tips in but didn't try intervening or alerting the family But like during the incident. I mean, a couple of times the family noticed and intervened, but I just wonder how long she was spending time with Beth that went unnoticed by the family, and nobody stopped to like interject and stop it from happening. I know that probably saying several tips were called in saying they were trying to coax Beth into the car. Maybe that's not what they called in. Maybe they just saw Beth talking to somebody and they didn't know they weren't family. And then afterwards they learned about this woman. But it seems suspicious to me that they wouldn't mention it. So do you know where all these events take place? Like was it always out front of her house or was it near the motel did it happen like at the grocery store like was it different places around town or was like she literally just like driving by the house and trying to coax this child out into the street into her car I think that it was all just either in their front or backyard so the hotel was literally or motel it was literally built behind the house. So it sounds like, just from some recollections from other people, that if you were in the parking lot of the motel, you would also kind of be able to look into the backyard of the family, possibly even step into it. I'm not sure. 
Um, but either way, it was always at her house that the family saw. I would say the other events and tips that were listed were also at the family house, but I don't know this for sure. They're not specified that they were away from the house, though. I think it would have been kind of important if somebody said that they saw them following the family around, kind of. Other tips came in saying that a car was driving erratically in the area around the time of the abduction. I'm sure this stuck out to the community because, like I mentioned, they were pretty familiar with each other. I know I always notice Via driving crazy on my road because I have kids that play outside and this is a similar neighborhood. This is a family neighborhood. They were probably concerned for the same reasons, but they probably were not thinking that the driver potentially abducted their neighbor or did anything really that was not, or did anything really that was like illegal. They probably just thought it was someone driving crazy in a hurry to get somewhere. So I feel like I'm noticing a pattern here. I feel like this community is super invested in this case and the disappearance of this little girl. They're doing everything they can, calling in anything that seems to be suspicious, which is awesome. I feel like if every case started out like this, there would be a lot more solved cases. So people should really take notes. I mean, this was years and years ago in the 1960s. So... Like, if people could call in tips back then, um, I know, like, there probably wasn't um, things like video camera, like surveillance footage. There probably wasn't ways to track, you know, um, people's credit card activity, things like that would help nowadays. But these people are just calling in everything that they think was suspicious the day this little girl disappeared and then like leading up and the days after I just feel like if everyone did that when they heard about missing children or um really missing adults missing anyone that these cases could be solved a lot quicker I agree I think that witness reports are really important but also I can't say much because I do not pay attention to anything When I'm, like, going down the road, there's so much going on inside of my car. I'm just trying to focus on driving, where I'm going, what I need to do. I will pass people, and they will, like, text me later, tell me they saw me, and I'll have no idea when or where because I just do not, like, I'm looking in my lane, not yours. (laughs) So I can understand how some people just don't pay attention to things like that. One witness did say that they saw a couple matching the description of these two staying in a hotel that was staying in the motel that was trying to buy clothes for a baby girl. Um, Supposedly, the girl was crying for her mother. This seems plausible to me, but there's also a chance that this was just a family trying to buy their daughter clothes who needed a nap or even like an aunt and uncle babysitting that had to buy an outfit all of a sudden. If this is the case, I don't know why the couple wouldn't have came forward. This case had a lot of publicity at the time, and really it still does. I didn't know all of the details of the case, but I specifically remembered this tip of the little girl crying in the store. I think the others would probably remember it too if they were like, oh, at this time, that would have been us. Again, a lot of the adults in this um, this case, they're likely going to be deceased now or getting close to that time. So it's just not likely anyone will come forward now, but it really stinks that they didn't at the time. Now is probably a good time to mention that there were two couples actually staying at this motel called the Downtowner, and they were reported to have all been plausible suspects. The name of the motel even sounds sketchy to me. I hate that it's called the Downtowner. I don't really know what specifically I don't like about it, but it sounds like something sketchy would go down there. But anyways, the first couple was older and they were white. The male was about 60 to 65 and he was described as a natty dresser. I had to look up what that meant because I'd literally never heard of it. Apparently it means that he just dressed nice and looked fashionable. The woman was a white female who had white hair and was over the age of 60, but they didn't have like an exact estimate. They had a closer estimate on the male saying 60 to 65. 
The woman was believed to be around 5'1 and weighing 150 pounds. I would be a very bad witness because I just would never be able to guess someone's age, height, or weight. I don't know if they just had enough reports that they were able to put it together or if people were just very aware of these things at the time. I'm surprised that there was an ID on file from the hotel, though, just to confirm these stats for at least one of the suspects. I would think maybe it wasn't, wouldn't be as up in the air. Yeah, and maybe because this is because of the era that we're in, it is the 1960s, so maybe people were more trusting. Maybe that wasn't protocol to grab the people's IDs. Um, I don't know. That, that is kind of weird to me because I feel like you have to show something. You can't just be like, oh, my name's Billy Bob, and I'm here to stay. Like, there had to be some sort of documentation, right? I would say that they probably, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I would think they probably gave a name, but if they're giving false names elsewhere, then maybe that is how they know they were giving false names because maybe they didn't give the right name to the hotel or they gave a different name to the guy that was working on their vehicle. The second couple was actually with the older couple, so one of them could have been the one that checked in and the rest of them could be unknown. Um, they were... Possibly the parents, the older couple was possibly the parents to the woman in the younger couple. The younger woman was white, 5'2 with red hair, and her husband was also white, but he was approximately 6'1 with a slender build. A nearby gas station employee noticed a group that consisted of two couples, and they thought that they were acting suspicious days before the disappearance of Elizabeth. The employee of the gas station actually wrote down their license plate number, and when the group a few days later wrote it down again, they noticed that the license plates they wrote down each time were different, so that's why they wrote it down twice. The plates were being switched from Florida, Alabama, and Virginia. It was just really dumb luck that this employee had noticed such a little detail like that, but was able to submit it to the police, and I feel like that's so important to the case. Okay, so let's recap for a second because I feel like I might be getting mixed up. There was a couple waiting on their car to be fixed and selling purses that was using fake IDs or different identities. And two couples that were together, one was older, maybe parents, and then one was a younger couple, maybe like adult children or adult kids. So was the couple selling the purses the same as the two couples that were possibly related? Or is there like six different people here? I feel like I'm getting, I'm getting mixed up. No, it's very confusing. A lot of times in the reports, they would say like the couple. So just saying one. It was later when I found out it was two separate couples I do think that the woman likely trying to abduct the little girl was probably the older woman because they said that she was a little thicker built, more stocky, and kind of matched the description of what uh, Martha and her mother had seen. I don't necessarily know, though, if one theory we'll talk about later, maybe she was trying, like the family was trying to abduct the little girl. Maybe the younger couple couldn't have children. Um but it sounds like to me that there were just four people, two couples, like a mom, dad, their daughter, and possibly their son-in-law, um, but one family unit. The police department really gave it their all in this case. They didn't try blaming the parents, accusing the family, and they just really hit their ground running. They went door to door in the neighborhood looking for the uh, missing two-year-old girl. There were 300 volunteers involved in searching for Elizabeth, and they even drugged the Mississippi River. We'll find out later that it wasn't even likely that the Mississippi River could have been a suspect or could have been a, an issue in this case, but they drug it just in case, just to be sure. The Gill family home was just a few blocks away from the Mississippi River, 
So they were thinking it was possible that she could have wandered off and drowned or if she was kidnapped and then police put involved and then the police involvement put pressure on the kidnappers. They could have dumped her body there just trying to get rid of her in a hurry. This doesn't seem very likely though. Like I said, um, according to the family and the investigators, I just didn't want to leave it out because it was a theory that people did have. This is also why the investigation was not labeled an abduction specifically. So this two-year-old would have had to cross streets, railroad tracks, and go off a bluff to reach the water's edge. So that would be quite a trip, and if she somehow did manage that, she still wouldn't have been able to, like, like, she probably wouldn't have drowned. She would have just hit the edge, and you would have seen her body, or her body would have washed up. It also isn't likely that she would have made it that far and not been spotted. And there are no tips saying they saw a little girl wandering around. So I don't think that she could have made it that far without being spotted on her way to the river. The Dateline episode actually had a copy of the letter Elizabeth's father wrote to President Johnson in 1966 on Christmas Day. It's kind of difficult, and there's only a portion of it that was released. Um, Logan, do you want to read this for us? So the letter says, Lyndon B. Johnson, December 25th, 1966, President of the United States, Washington, D.C. Sir, please help us find our little girl, Elizabeth Ann Gill, who has been missing from in front of our house since Sunday, June 13th of 1965. She is the youngest of our 10 children. Elizabeth was two years and 10 months old at the time of her disappearance. We live two blocks from the Mississippi River Bridge. There was another paragraph available to read on that. I couldn't make out the words, so... I thought we better just skip it. Yeah, that's so awful. I can't imagine feeling so hopeless and missing your daughter so much and you just want her to be found that you send a letter to the president. Um, I think the last person I'm sending a letter to if my child goes missing is Biden, but we'll just leave that at that. Um, But I, again, I feel like this is the time era. Now we would like probably send letters to like newspaper outlets we would probably send letters to podcasts we would probably send letters to the local fbi things like that but i just feel like this this era they they really felt like i'm gonna go straight to the top i'm gonna go to the president no i definitely agree um you're probably right that now we would take a totally different approach like I know if something happened to my child, I would be trying to talk to, like, whoever could get me on the news. So you'd probably, like, for us locally, we would call KY3 or try to get on there. Just speak out at any opportunity that you have, getting on podcasts, even getting on shows. Like, um, how many cases were solved just from Unsolved Mysteries? We hear about it all the time. We listen to podcasts about episodes that were solved because of tips that came in from there. I just can't imagine having to actually do it. But that was also just a portion of the letter. At the end, he did say that he and his three brothers volunteered to serve during World War II for five years from 1941 until 1945. So he was now actually requesting that his country serve his people. He was requesting that his country now serve his family by allowing the FBI to get involved in tracking down this mysterious couple. I kind of wonder if he didn't try getting the FBI involved and then they couldn't do it. So he wrote the letter to the president begging, like, please let them get involved. Um, instead of the president responding, though, it was the FBI that responded within the few weeks, within a few weeks, but they basically said they can't get involved because it was out of their jurisdiction. The Logan has a copy of this letter that she's going to read to us, and it will kind of tell you that just in a longer version. <laughs> January 13th, 1967. Dear Mr. Gill, your letter dated December 25th, 1965 to the president has been referred to the bureau and was received on January 10th, 1967. 
I can certainly appreciate your anxiety and concern regarding the disappearance of your little girl, Elizabeth Ann. For your information, a missing person notice is mandated in the files of our identification division and was published in the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin in sort in April. In response to your inquiry, I must advise you that the FBI is precluded from conducting an active investigation concerning a missing person in the absence of evidence and of evidence indicating a violation within our investigative jurisdiction. We have, however, covered some out-of-state loads at the request of Cape Girardeau Police Department, and you may be assured that we will continue to maintain close contact with the agency for any evidence indicating an abduction and violation of the federal kidnapping statute. Yours, sincerely yours, John Edgar Hoover, Director. So that's kind of why I said maybe um, the FBI had already been reached out to. So it says on there that they had been in contact with the Cape Girardeau Police Department. I don't know if they got in contact with them because of the letter or if they were just saying like, hey, we've already been in contact with them. We're doing what we can. They weren't doing what they could, but we'll get into more of that later. Um, a few years after this happened, in 1970, a prisoner actually came forward claiming that he hit Beth with his car and then disposed of her body. This ended up being a bust. The prisoner couldn't lead the investigators to a body, and it was determined he was just trying to get out of jail early. His name was Philip Clark, and he was a man serving a life sentence. Philip killed his ex-wife's grandmother and held five other people hostage. In 1971, he killed another inmate, so a year after he had this um, confession, and then he was actually murdered in 1977. I can't imagine what kind of deal he would get for adding that he murdered a baby girl to the list, or like prison justice. Wouldn't that cause an issue there? So I'm just not really sure what his goal was there, but that was what he was trying to get by with. Yeah, um, he sounds like a total piece of crap. Yeah, I don't, I know we talk about prison confessions a lot, and I don't understand the false confessions. I mean, some, I know some, like, serial killers, they just want to add people so they can have, like, the longest list. But this was just a random case that he was just causing pain to a family for no reason, and he didn't have anything to back himself up, so it was going to be a bust. In 2003, Detective Jimmy Smith was actually assigned to the case after he received a tip regarding Elizabeth's disappearance, but he couldn't find the file related to the case. Smith had to piece together this investigation just through old articles and the family's recollection of events. There were a few binders, I believe, but it was a mess. Um, we'll talk about this in some later cases, too. I think this is extremely frustrating because it seems like the original investigators really did their part in looking for Elizabeth, but they just didn't have the technology and sorting methods that we do today. It was just a blessing that the files hadn't disappeared completely. I know sometimes we hear of cases that they can't find a file, period. It's like the case never existed. That wasn't the case here, but it just was really hard to get anywhere. Detective Smith didn't let this lack of information slow him down, though. He collected DNA from the family, and with the help of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, he had it entered into the database. Seven years after he actually began working on the case, so in 2010, the FBI joined the team and began looking for Elizabeth. Elizabeth's case was reclassified as a kidnapping, but this was 45 years after her disappearance, it really stinks that it wasn't done earlier, like when her father had originally reached out to them, but it was eventually done. I feel like this has a lot to do with more resources and technology that we have today. It's easier now um, to help with these types of cases because of like everything we have. We can use the computer, it stores everything for us. Um, we have recordings, just like I 
technology has progressed so well. It's just sad um, because now like they're going back and looking into this case and it's probably a little too late um, just because evidence wasn't saved things weren't filed properly and it's not to their fault. I mean, it was in the 1960s. So like what worked for them then obviously doesn't work with what we have going on now. And Elizabeth's parents could hardly talk about her disappearance while they were alive. So I'm sure that it was really hard having to redo this, like having to be re-questioned and talk about it again. But before passing, her mother was kind of hopeful that 21st century technology could help find her daughter. So she was hopeful, and I think that's better than being depressed and thinking of every possible horrible outcome that could have resulted from Elizabeth's disappearance. I have a tendency, like I mentioned earlier, just to think worst-case scenario. So I think it's just really good that her mom did have something to hold on to. Elizabeth's siblings submitted their DNA to Ancestry and 23andMe also. And two women, um, not on the Ancestry site, but just that found Elizabeth's case, I guess, had actually came forward thinking that they could have potentially been Elizabeth. They weren't, but they were able to both locate their families, so I think that's really cool. The FBI has also talked to people that could have been related to or friends with either of the couples we mentioned earlier. It's likely that they're all dead, but at this point, the investigation is just to find Elizabeth, not to, pro not to prosecute her kidnappers. Her family just want to know her and be involved in her life. I did read the officers found other people who could have potentially been Elizabeth, but they were obviously not. They were able to check their DNA and it didn't match up. So those were all, um, those were all just dead ends. A relative of one of the potential kidnappers was actually located in 2010. This relative was told by a family member, potentially one of the kidnappers, that they were held and questioned for the disappearance of a little girl, but the family member seemed really reluctant to talk about the incident and didn't offer much. I'm not sure if this was because she just didn't want to say anything about the couple or upset the family or if it was because she didn't believe it to be true, maybe she didn't want to bring their family into this kind of spotlight. I mean, it would be really awkward. But if this is true, it sounds like the officers could have potentially found some of the suspects of the case and potentially interviewed them. If they did interview her cousin or relative, whatever, it could have been a brother, I don't know, whatever relative it was, was and if they were interviewed for Elizabeth's case and he's telling her about it, then they could have potentially found one of the suspects that wouldn't look great because I would think if the family member had a two-year-old girl around that time, then they would be able to put the pieces together before their interview. And so if this tip does end up being true, it would seem like Elizabeth would possibly not still be alive. The couple did abduct her. They probably, with the... um with all of the publicity, just decided it was safer to not keep her, safer for them. We've talked a lot about Martha, too. Martha, Elizabeth's sister, seemed to have coped the way that most families seem to in this situation. She speaks out and gives back to other families that are going through similar experiences that they went through. She volunteers her time with Team Hope. Team Hope offers support for families of the missing and is actually through the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children. There's an age progression photo that we'll share that shows Elizabeth at the age of 50. Elizabeth also went by Beth, Betsy, and Bethy. She had a chickenpox scar on her right elbow, according to the Charlie Project, and Elizabeth's mother and seven siblings were still alive and longing for her return at that time. We do know her mother has since passed, so there's a chance that some of her siblings could have also, but she does still have the seven siblings waiting on her. Her family and the police believe that Elizabeth was abducted by a family that just wanted a baby girl. Maybe they couldn't have their own children, or maybe they just thought it was easier to have an instant family by abducting someone else's child. I would much rather think this was the case instead of thinking of other cruel fates that Elizabeth could have succumbed to. But that is really where the investigation stands as of today. 
Um, go Martha for being such a great older sister and continuing to advocate for her sister and then other missing children and missing people. Um, my hope is this family gets some sort of closure. And if Beth wasn't taken and kept as their own, she at least never suffered through whatever fate she was dealt. Um, cases like this are so hard because you, you don't know, like, maybe it's better for them to think like she was taken and kept as their own instead of thinking she was taken and then, you know, killed and disposed of. But it's just so hard because, again, you, you have no you have no idea. I don't know which one really at the end of the day is better. I agree. I really hope that one day we might find out what happened. It would be really cool to hear on the news about like this woman that found her family as an adult and got to reconnect with them. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Elizabeth Ann Gill, you can contact the Cape Girardeau Police Department at 573-335-6621. I think it would be so cool if one day... I wouldn't put it past our technology advancements if for this case to be solved. If you want to see pictures of the age progression photo or information related to this week's case, you can follow us on Instagram at Bones, a true crime pod. Follow our Facebook page, Bones, a true crime podcast. Subscribing and leaving reviews for our podcast also helps us expand our audience base and is really appreciated. And let us know what you think about listener names. Do you want to be boneheads? Is that really dorky? I don't know. I'm embarrassed talking about it. So, like, help me out. <laughs> hey, boneheads. Or what's next, boneheads? I don't know. You have to, like, get into it and see if it sounds right. We'll have to think of other names and we'll make maybe a post and you guys can vote or leave your suggestions. Sounds great. So we'll see you guys next week. Bye.